You're listening to the Table Talk podcast brought to you by the team at Food Matters. Welcome to Table Talk, a guide to the future of food and nutrition brought to you by Food Matters. In these podcasts, we chat with visionaries from across the food industry to discover the ideas that will transform our food landscape. I'm Stefan Gates. I'm a food science writer, broadcaster and all-round gastronaut. Now, obesity. It's one of the biggest health crises facing the UK. Almost two-thirds of British adults are now overweight or living with obesity. And obesity-related illnesses cost our NHS £6 billion a year. So, what are the psychological factors behind our obesity epidemic? And can an understanding of psychology help with changing our behaviour when it comes to food? This is the second in our series delving into the psychology of our food choices and eating behaviours. And joining me to discuss this is Dr Lisa Newson, Reader in Applied Health Psychology at Liverpool John Moores University. Hello there, Lisa. Hello. So just to start off, let's lay a bit of groundwork. And when we talk about eating behaviours, what exactly does that really mean? Okay, so when people think about eating behaviours, typically we think of diets and what we eat. But eating behaviour is more than this. It encompasses food choice and motivations, feeding practices, dieting, eating related problems such as obesity, eating disorders, feeding disorders. Eating behaviour covers the what, where, why, when and how we eat. So that doesn't need to be necessarily a good or a bad concept. It's just about the nuts and bolts of of how we approach our food. Is that right? Yeah, that's everything. Okay. So why do people come obese? What are the factors that we need to think about? And what can we realistically change? Okay. So the factors associated with obesity are complex and comprehensive. On an individual level, obesity starts with the physiology or our biology. So the biological interplay that regulates our appetite, our energy functioning requirements, our metabolic rate, the level of thermogenesis, genetic predisposition to obesity. So for example, twin studies show that 40 to 70% of the variability in weight is inherited. More than 200 gene variations influence weight. And those that increase weight are more common in people with severe obesity and less likely to be found in people who are thin. So whilst genes and biology are not the complete picture, they have a strong role in an individual's susceptibility to obesity. But then let's consider actual food intake. So food intake is influenced by dietary habits, in part formed by culture and society, food variety, food density, palatability, food exposure, portion size, rate of eating, convenience food, skills for cooking, time for preparing food. And if we think about food production, the cost of ingredients, the availability, the profit in the food sector, Mm -hmm. associated jobs with the food sector. And then let's go on to think about physical activity. We've got individual level of activity. And then we've got things around transport and what type of exercise that we do. And then the other two aspects are both individual and social psychology. So on an individual level, the consciousness of obesity, the role of stress, social conformity, food literacy, mental health and well-being. And on the social psychology level, let's consider the social norms of society, the role of the media, the social acceptance and the social rejection of obesity. And these are just some brief summary of the factors that we need to consider in the development and the promotion of obesity. 
What you've described is is a pretty pretty good definition of the concept of chaos to me. I mean, there's so many different factors, so many things that are out of people's control. Plus, you've got a little bit of Calvinist predestination in there and saying, well, it's, it's, it's actually in your genes. Is it relevant to try and tackle obesogenic behaviour? There are so many different things to be dealing with. It, it, do you not just occasionally just wake up and go, oh, sod it, it's just too difficult? Well, um, yeah, good question. I think historically, maybe that's what's happened you know, it's it's a complex issue and, and let's tackle one tiny aspect of the jigsaw puzzle at a time and hope it works. Actually, we need people to understand that this is a complex jigsaw puzzle. It, you know, it's not easy. And if we keep sort of turning a blind eye to all the factors that influence obesity, we're not going to make an impact. We're not going to make a difference. Mm. So we have to systematically work across this topic and this agenda. Okay, so let's focus on the psychology of eating. It's an extraordinarily complex subject, but can you unpack some of the complexities that are involved? So you, you talked about a whole series of different things that affect eating behaviours, including environment and, and media and, all, and things like that. What about insiders? What, what do we need to think about? Which are the specific complexities when it comes to changing our behaviour with food? So psychology is the science of behaviour, so I'll give this a go. Eating behaviour is it is complex and it's influenced by, as I mentioned, personal, social, cultural, environmental and economic factors. And if we unpack this, first off, typically we aim to eat for energy and nutrition. We eat to live. Mm. This is a biological focus. It's an objective of consuming food. Food affects how our bodies operate and it impacts on our physical health. However, we don't just eat for hunger these days. We eat as part of our culture and our behavior, our daily body clocks, our social engagement, our day-to-day -day lives are entwined with eating patterns and social expectations. What we eat doesn't just affect our physical health. It can also affect our mental health and well-being. On an individual basis, our behaviors are influenced by our biology and psychological needs. But these factors are also influenced by social and environmental surroundings, our social norms and expectations, the local community, the built environment, access to energy dense convenience food fast and hectic lifestyles issues around transport and physical activity so the concept of food consumption and the psychology of eating isn't simple but we must consider the topic holistically okay now i just like your opinion on something very simple as well simple is, is a relative term it's also really complex do you think there's a balance between tackling obesity and, and getting people to face up to a, a huge medical problem and the potential of making them feel miserable and depressed about the constant control of how they eat is there at some point a, a balance where you say do you know what to try and help this person with the physiological aspect of this will cause so many psychological problems that maybe it's just to say you're good you know back off and and, and let's not break something further with a person's emotional makeup okay i mean it's an interesting point and i very much advocate that obesity is a disease and, and i'll give some information on that shortly but the concept of by telling somebody that they've got a disease called obesity makes them feel worse um people who are living with obesity are more likely to suffer psychological distress um, depression or anxiety you know people who are living with obesity know that they're obese people don't wake up one morning and choose to be obese so people are living with the stigma the discrimination the prejudice that exists out there in our society and our culture anyway 
And because of that, people actually don't come forward and get the treatment and the support and the guidance that might be helpful to them. So actually, we, we need to make a change. We need to make a difference in the way that we speak about obesity, the way that we support people with obesity, because actually by ignoring it and saying, don't worry about this or it doesn't matter or it's not a, a condition you need to treat mm. isn't going to be helpful to their psychology either. Yeah. Is there any data on the, on the level of success in conquering obesity or helping people improve it as a disease, if you can look at it in epidemiological terms? Wow, good question. I don't know the exact answer to that. What I'd say is, I mean, I'm pushing there about recognizing obesity as a disease. So the World Health Organization, the International Obesity Task Force, or called World Obesity Now, they recognize obesity as a disease. And this is echoed across the world in other countries. So Japan, Portugal, Canada. Only in 2018 did the Royal College of Physicians in the UK call for the recognition of obesity as a disease. There's starting to be a shift in the way that we discuss and treat obesity. So as we move forward and as we take this as a condition and, and, and as we really look into this properly in standardized care, standardized services, you know, people have a whole variety of access or not to support. But as we improve that and we help to reduce stigma, then in that sense, we can look at, at the outcomes. But in terms of classifying it as a disease, does it help and give statistics? I don't have that information for you. <laughs> okay, I, that, that's absolutely fair enough as well. Now, there's presumably a difference between behavioural change to prevent obesity and behaviour change for those who are already living with obesity. Is this significant in your work? Okay, so in short, prevention is better than cure, mm -hmm. full stop, for all, all conditions regardless. So if we set our society up, that we live in an environment to prevent obesity. And by this, I mean reduce susceptibility of obesity developing through public health measures. Then the behavior change efforts focus on our environment, our societal change. So things like food tax or, or policies on changing high sugar, high fat foods, for example, that's an example of an environmental society based change. Mm. So this is looking at, at the prevention end of the spectrum, if you like. Yeah. But just to kind of be a stickler on this, by 10 or 11 years old, already in our country or in England, one third, around 33% of our children are already overweight or obese. And over two thirds of adults in our country, 66% plus, are overweight or obese. So actually, overweight and obesity is a majority behavior. Mm -hmm. So prevention, in short, needs to get better. We need to get better at it. But obesity, you know, for the majority of adults who are overweight or obese, it's a management of a chronic condition over a life course. It's a relapsing lifetime disease. Hmm. So obesity won't disappear, but it has to be managed following the onset. And for people who do lose weight, their goals and their behavior change will be to maintain that loss. So yeah, the goals of behavior change depend on the needs of individual, whether that be prevention, whether that be in treatment to lose weight, or whether that be maintenance and, and sort of managing that over the life course. Mm -hmm. And are there specific psychological risk factors for obesity? Is, is there a personality type more likely to end up overweight? And is it useful to use concepts like that or not? Mm. Yeah, research investigating the association between body weight and personality traits, for example, have found mixed results. Mm. If we think more generally, research does show a link between what we eat and how we feel. And this is an example of the psychology of eating. So some foods can make us feel better, such as those found in a Mediterranean diet, and foods can also alter our mood. 
So in simple terms, think about when we eat chocolate or caffeine, people will talk about they need their caffeine hit in the morning or they have headaches with their caffeine withdrawal or whatever. But in the short term, these make us feel good. They make us feel okay. But often these types of food have a more negative effect on how we feel. So our feelings and behaviors alongside our biology drives our eating patterns. So this topic isn't as simple as increasing activity and reducing calorie consumption. It's much more complex to unpick. Mm. But psychological factors, if we think about chronic stress and depression, avoidance of emotion, low self-worth, poor body image, self-criticism, and what we refer to as negative core beliefs, these may also play a significant role here. You mentioned quite a few just terrifying statistics about the problem in the UK. Mm. Is this a problem particularly acute here and possibly in the US? And are there specific social and cultural challenges in this country that could be causing it? Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, in terms of the rates of obesity in the UK, they are particularly high. And if we compare rates of obesity to others in Europe, we are one of the highest in Europe. So, yeah, there's a definite issue. Hmm. I mean, it's an interesting question about, you know, the concept of social and cultural challenges in our country. If if we think about socially and socially, obesity is a double edged sword. On one hand, the majority of adults are overweight or obese. So, as I've mentioned, it's a social norm. It's commonplace. Everyone's on a diet. Everyone has an opinion. Everyone comments on the latest diet or fad. Mm. On the whole, people consider it, you know, pretty simple to lose weight. But in reality, actually losing weight is, is pretty tricky. On the flip side, so in, in our countries, particularly, obesity is a social stigma. Mm. People living with obesity experience both stigma and discrimination as part of everyday life. And research shows that bias, prejudice, discrimination occurs in the workplace, educational settings, healthcare services, and amongst personal relationships with friends and family. Stigma and shame do not motivate people to help them make sustainable changes to their lives. People appear to understand the basic concept of obesity, but they're less so understanding the true complexity of this as a disease. Mm. And to be clear, obesity is not a choice. So whilst we can encourage behaviour change, we know that sustained and maintained behaviour change is much harder. And this is why people stop dieting after two weeks. Because behavior change isn't as simple as being told to do or not to do something. We must support the person psychologically and holistically, including the factors that I've mentioned earlier. Now, obesity is a problem that's been around for a long, long time. And we have been aware of it more and more recently. So people have tried to help patients who are suffering from obesity. Would you say that it just hasn't really worked in the past? And if so, what approach should we be taking to try and be more successful in dealing with it? Okay, um, so as I've mentioned, things are changing or have changed in relation to things like Royal College of Physicians coming forward and saying, actually, we should recognise obesity as a disease. And that changes, you know, if it is formally recognised as a disease, it changes the focus in the NHS and the way that services are set up and the financial package that goes towards that as a condition, if you like. So in that case, things are changing there. But how should we treat it? Well, there's the difference between prevention, as I've said, and prevention, we need to change what we're doing here. So we need to think bigger about the environmental, the transport, the way that we build our communities and how we encourage activity and how we encourage access to good, healthy food. Research shows that access to healthy foods or having a healthy diet is much more expensive than convenience based high fat, high sugar foods, you know, and consistently the research is showing, you know, cost wise. So people are going to make choices based on cost, availability and access to food. Mm. But thinking from a point of view as a psychologist, obesity impacts 
has an adverse impact on both physical health and mental health. And it's also connected to other chronic conditions, pain, depression, type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, some types of cancer. And these all negatively influence quality of life. So we need to provide treatment and interventions that really support people to build resources, build resilience, build tools psychologically and emotionally to help them manage their obesity, to help them avoid or get away from the stigmatized label of obesity that may be damaging their self-esteem and their negative psychological cycle, if you like. Mm. Now, we've talked about about food advertising bans on this podcast a a fair bit, to be honest. The government is pressing ahead with a plan to ban adverts for HFSS food and drinks. Mm. Do you think that this move will have much of an impact? And even if it doesn't, is it worth giving it a go anyway? Mm. Um, Yes. So in... <laughs> mm, you're clearly not yeah. convinced entirely. But... Well, I okay, I'll give you my honest opinion. Um, so you know, at the end of the day, it's part of what I refer to as this jigsaw. And mm. so every aspect that we do, you know, we have to tackle this problem absolutely holistically. We have to go for the whole aspects of the jigsaw. It's not just about policy, it's not just about physical activity, it's not just about diet, it's about the whole package. So I think it's a change that could help, but it's one action, it's one piece of the jigsaw. So in my opinion, it's a low-hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. And from the government perspective, I'm not saying it's easy to change legislation and I'm not saying it's a small feat to do this, but in comparison to the whole obesity agenda, it's a low-hanging, easy win, it's doable. On its own, unless there are other considered factors, it'll have minimal impact on obesity itself. So it'll have minimal impact on reducing individual obesity, if you like. It may have an influence on dietary behavior as a whole, perhaps on a population level. But it's low-hanging fruit, for sure. There's a conceptual change, I guess, if the government is dealing with it. But but do you think it's sort of shirking the responsibility of of actually regulating the food companies by instead basically regulating advertising? Yeah, I think when I say easy, I mean this loosely because nothing's easy to make a change. But I, I think it's an easy target. You know, it's it's an it's a way to tick a box and say we're tackling obesity. In reality, they're tackling a very small aspect of that jigsaw, probably the piece that's the easiest to put in. Yeah. How about the companies that that make HFSS foods mm. and sell it and they look to influence people's behaviour because obviously they want people to buy it? Do you think it's fair to lay some blame at these companies' doors? Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, in short, yes. And again, I kind of sit here a little bit on the fence because companies are there to make a profit. That's what a company is. Mm-hmm. So companies make products to make profit and profit and behavior go hand in hand. So, you know, smoking cigarettes, the cigarette industry, the gambling industry, the selling alcohol industry, but actually any industry, you know, selling fast cars, is that a good thing or isn't it that a good thing? It influences our behavior. Mm. So any any company that wants to make a profit is looking for a high turnover and a profit. And selling highly palatable foods at a low cost with a long shelf life, easily accessible food to meet people's needs in what they you know want and need, then that's their goal. Yeah. That in itself doesn't support the public health goal of reducing obesity though Mm. so research has shown that eating a healthy nutritious diet is more expensive and more time consuming is that the goal of the food industry to resolve that is that the goal of government and is that possible i don't know (laughs) at all (laughs) um you've mentioned uh, cigarettes you know we saw a real change in how people view smoking over the last 20 years so Mm. are there lessons to be learned from that in the way that we approach obesity or is that a little far-fetched yeah, no, I think definitely. If you think in the 70s, 80s, you know, smoking tobacco was a 
it was a majority behavior in the UK. The majority of adults, more than 80%, were smokers. Mm. And actually, it was unfashionable. It was the social norm, but it was unfashionable not to be a smoker. And so, you know, look where we are now, you mm. know, around 15% or less in certain areas of the country are smokers. So majority of adults in the UK are now not smokers. So that's an example of where behavior change, both in terms of teaching people and educating people, understanding the implications of smoking on our bodies and our health, understanding the role of social situations and passive smoking, and then where we've got legislation. So these are examples where actually we can learn from what's happened in in the smoking platform in terms of smoking as a behavior it's got nicotine as as one addictive chemical which goes from your body quite quickly whereas when we think about eating eating behavior actually there's quite a few drives that our body craves for around sugars for example or if you think about caffeine as another example so it's slightly more complex to give up food because we can't give up food in itself Mm. so it's a slightly more complex behavior but we can make comparisons to smoking and you know we are some way behind in terms of the smoking arena but years back people thought it was absolutely you know, it would be unbelievable to not allow people to smoke indoors or, you know, it would be unbelievable for smoking not to be the majority behavior that people did and look where we are. So there are lessons that we can learn. And certainly people in the obesity field do talk about these sorts of comparisons. Yeah. And what other things would you like to see happen? So you're talking about the advertising ban um, as being low hanging fruit. Are there other simple first steps? And I know I know that, that it's a complication. It's, it's a very person specific approach to it. But there must be a range of things that you would like to see happen where you kind of think, oh, come on, at least you can do this as a start. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we need social intervention for a start. We need social intervention to reduce the stigma and the discrimination that sits around obesity. Even if you think over the last year with COVID and the stigma that's been associated with people living with obesity and COVID and the way that that's kind of escalated in the country, Mm. you know, we need to help educate people properly and give people knowledge surrounding obesity and everybody has an opinion on it, but actually, you know, we need to, to get more of a systematic process and education and opinion for people to understand it better but more than that journalists policymakers, service providers basically anyone that produces media about weight management should use language and imagery that does not stigmatize people living with obesity or wanting to make changes to their diet we need to support people to feel able to address their eating behaviors and not feel ashamed or embarrassed or Mm. guilty or any of the other negative connotations that sit there and then thinking about making healthy food choices this is entwined in sustained behavior change and to achieve sustained behavior change we need to support people with psychological and emotional change as well so interventions should build skills and tools to deal with psychological challenges we face in everyday life and i would argue that that's something that's not consistently available at the moment Hmm. it's going to cost isn't it (laughs) let's face it well you can say it's going to cost but you know as you started the podcast with obesity is costing however much money to the nhs per year yeah this it's the figure that comes out quite a lot isn't it six billion a year well i mean people chuck the cost around six billion a year yada 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 well actually let's have a look at that Mm. and let's put that into supporting people both in the prevention let's prevent the other third of adults 
from also getting obese yeah. but actually let's put that prevention into children so that we don't have this continued in the future which again is an area that needs a significant investment and, and real focus from the government it's all very well talking about public health and prevention but if the majority of adults are already overweight or obese let's support people properly let's invest in them so that actually we make savings further down the line and we don't have so much of the other comorbidities that exist as linking to obesity. That's right. I mean, and we've seen the impact of this with COVID-19. It's, it's been huge, isn't it? So I think you met, you sort of nudged towards it there. I mean, a, a lot of this seems to come down to education in the first place, or certainly dealing with food issues and potentially sort of behavioural issues around food right from the very start. Is there anything that you would like to see really happen on a simple level when it comes to talking to children about food? What would you like to see happen in primary schools? Hmm. Good question. I think it's interesting. Again, there's a there's a big variety across schools in the way that over the years, there's been a, a cycle of, you know, one moment we've got healthy schools, the next moment that's been withdrawn, one moment mm. we've got PE and regular physical activity in school, and then that system changes. Schools need support in really having a consistent message in the way that they operate as a school that they implement their healthy eating and physical activity policies, yeah. that they embed it into their curriculum, into their lessons. But, you know, even, I mean, I have a daughter in primary school and they have language at six years old that, you know, oh, so-and-so is fat. And then you look in the Mr. Men book, Mr. Thin, and they talk about being fat. Yeah. I, I kind of look at that and say, oh, right. Well, you know, are we helping children along with the stigma yeah. how are we addressing stigma and, and language and and the way that we talk about obesity and how people feel yeah so I think I think there's more to be done in schools but I'm not saying either that it's all about school and the school environment children yes they are in school for a significant portion of the day but actually you know across the portion of the year when we take school holidays and things in the majority of children's lives are spent at home with their families and families and, and parents need support too. Yeah. And, you know, I'd be saying, well, it's not just about the school structure. It's about also how are we supporting families? How are we supporting our communities around this topic? Mm. And I think that's a neglected area. Uh, you're absolutely right. And and making food interesting and adventurous and, and actually incorporating it into your life is, is so important. There are a few schools who, that have started to do things like that around London. It's difficult and it's expensive and it takes commitment from heads and they are distracted by so many other things and by by trying to tick other boxes so it's really difficult but as you say beginning to tackle it and taking it seriously and you know removing some of the stigma is a very very important first step uh, dr lisa newson thank you so much for talking to us you've been listening to the tabletop podcast brought to you by food matters and if you enjoyed this episode you might like previous episodes in which we explore pretty much every aspect of the food industry from plastic waste to plant-based diets subscribe to get every episode freshly delivered to you on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to find out more, take a look at foodmatters.co.uk. Thank you so much for listening. 